Welcome to the Eucatastrophe, where we meander through politics, pop culture, church, and society to consider true human ends and how life may be enchanted. I'm Joel Harrison, and joined as always by my co-host Dave Taylor. Dave, Comic-Con just happened. And uh, as soon as I say Comic-Con, Tim, who is also doing our producing at the moment, his eyes roll back, he goes to sleep. Although I should mention that he is sitting down reading a comic book. Mr. Miracle. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And this is the guy that was all like, oh, the Avengers Endgame episode. You need to to talk about like uh, Norse Norse gods and druids. (laughs) (laughs) Tim's a Celtic scholar. Got him. (laughs) He's a Celtic scholar, so he just talks about druids all day. That's what he told me. That's what he told me. It's basically Asterix. (laughs) Yeah, and and Rod Williams. (laughs) So Comic-Con happened, Dave, and as a noted misogynist that you are, did you note that um, Thor is now going to be nearly Pullman? As a misogynist who who hated Captain Marvel because of its undermining of all that is good in the world, Mm. um, how do you feel about that? Oh, I don't know. Threatened. What is this? What is this narrative we're creating about me? <laughs> this through the only fruit through Fred of this whole podcast is me somehow being misogynist. Yeah, you're one of the frat boys who wants to change the Last Jedi yeah. into a film not about Ray. Yeah, that's yeah. right. You have committed your funds to it. You yeah. are you are committed. Hashtag not my Luke. Yeah. So. That you may think is true or you could think of it as an instance of what we may call bullshit, yes. which is what we are talking about today. See how I segue <laughs> there? Was, that was massively done. <laughs> <Seamless. laughs> so we are talking about bullshit. Now, we mean that hmm. technically, but yes. we're probably going to use the word a few times. So if you don't like that, well... Oh, no. <laughs> I, okay. I almost totally <laughs> said a much worse swear. <laughs> no. All right, so David. So... um. We're talking about, as Joel said, bullshit in a technical sense. So in 1986, an American philosopher called Harry Frankfurt wrote an incredibly influential essay that I've read numerous times um, called On Bullshit. Uh, It's an essay I came across in my third year of undergraduate during a um, political philosophy course. Uh, In it, Frankfurt sought to interrogate or provide a kind of philosophical critique of what he saw as a new type of speech that was beginning to shape discourse across all levels of society. So particularly business management, journalism, politics, and perhaps even religion as well. Uh, and this form of speech he referred to as bullshit. Frankfurt. <laughs> you just got to shout it down. <laughs> it's okay. You could just say it as a normal word. It's all okay. right. Just let it flow. <laughs> uh, so Frankfurt, so when he says bullshit, he doesn't mean lying. Um, uh, indeed, he actually thinks lying is more dignified than bullshit because the liar, in his view, has a certain respect for the truth in that he is the, the, the liar is deliberately trying to conceal it um, through telling a falsehood. But the bullshitter doesn't have any concern for truth or falsity at all and instead is kind of engaging in a type of play with language um, it is it is mere kind of clay for him to or her to mould. Um, so here's a quote from Harry uh, Harry Frankfurt. He says, "What bullshit essentially misrepresents is neither the state of affairs to which it refers, nor the beliefs of the speaker concerning the state of affairs. Those are what liars misrepresent by virtue of being false. Since bullshit need not be false, it def- 
differs from lies in its misrepresentational intent. The bullshitter may not deceive us or even intend to do so, either about facts or about what he takes to be facts or what he takes the facts to be. What he does necessarily attempt to deceive us about is his enterprise. His only only indispensably distinctive characteristic is that in a certain way he misrepresents what he is up to. Um, so this is a, a fascinating distinction that I found incredibly um, powerful when I first came across it um, as an undergraduate, especially uh, kind of studying at the the kind of heyday and the rise of social media and this transformation that was happening in journalism with the rise of Twitter and reporting on Twitter. Um, truth and falsity seem to have been kind of completely done away with as categories. But where, where, does this, where does this kind of turn in language, in discourse, in all these important areas come from? Um, well, Frankfurt kind of sees it as coming out of a sort of necessity. Uh, one of the main sources of bullshit uh, is when someone speaks, um, according to Frankfurt at least, when someone speaks about, what they, about something that they have no knowledge of. Um, they just have to, when they're just forced to kind of have to say something. So often uh, undergraduate essays are full of bullshit because they're they're written by people that haven't necessarily read the text they're writing about and they have to just fill up essays with words. But the same could be said of a lot of journalism as well. So Frankfurt was writing at the time of the rise of corporate news um, and corporate news empires with their 24-7 commentary on everything from the micro to macro level of society. And as a result, journalists began to be expected to have something to say about world events as soon as they happened without any reflection. And actually, reflection was an enemy of the news because the news thrived on having the first word to say on a topic. And so something needed to be said. And this in turn shaped political discourse where the breadth of the issues that politicians were coming to be expected to speak meaningfully about increased vastly um, over the coming decades, whenever a microphone was shoved into someone's face, they were expected to be able to just speak to the, the topic. And so politicians began to have to, and, and I know this was not out of nowhere, this was always an element of politics, but it seemed at a new level, politicians were expected to just speak whenever a microphone was put in their face. And hence, bullshit became the, uh, the, the kind of flavour of the month or flavour of the following several decades. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, this is kind of coupled with another social phenomenon that happened, which was the rise of a managerial class in the corporate world. So people like consultants and HR consultants and um, uh, public image uh, consultants and things like that who exist purely to, it seems, to reorganise the architecture of language um, to suit some sort of... Um, corporate agenda. Uh, And this industry that pops up kind of becomes self-perpetuating because who says that this role is necessary? It's the people themselves who uh, jump into these positions. And so it becomes a self-perpetuating industry. And this leads to what uh, uh, anthropologist called David Graeber calls the rise of bullshit jobs. That is, there's whole swathes of uh, the population who know that they're doing jobs that don't need to exist, that there's no actual utility to. And this leads to a lot of kind of existential angst, people spending their entire time doing things that are unnecessary. 
I think I'll, I'll leave that rant there. But Joel, does this ring any bells for you? So I think yes, and I think there's uh, a distinction I may want to introduce. Sure. Um, types of bullshit. Yeah. Um, one may be just total disinterest in the truth. Yeah. Right. And the other may be you know what the truth is. You, yeah. You un- you or you have an understanding of where you want to go. Yeah. And you will adopt any tactic pragmatically to get there. So you're indifferent to the mode of argument so long as you think it gets to your end goal. Right. right? So there's a there's a total indifference and then there's the sort of yeah. indifference to the mode. And on the first one, it's interesting when you raised this, I thought this is this is one of my concerns about the modern university mm. actually. Um, because I wonder whether uh, when we have, you know, we've shifted the university towards such a metric-based understanding that academics themselves now, it could lead to, now I'm, I'm, this is my, just a speculative thought, right? Mm. But it could lead to indifference yeah. to what you're actually doing, what you're actually writing. You don't care right. about, you don't have the conviction of commitment to what you're writing Mm. What you want to do is just simply put something down on a page so mm. that it's published. Yeah, that's right. right. Because the metrics then um, force you into mm. saying, oh, "This is how you value me." You're mm. not valued based on the, you know, the depth of the argument, mm. the persuasiveness, whatever. Although hopefully peer review has something to do with that, right? But but actually at a university level, the metric of it. And so I I sometimes worry that you know yeah. increasingly what we see is people who are not actually full of conviction. Yeah. Well, I think there's there, I think that's absolutely spot on, but I think there is actually one there's something similar going on with another type of academic uh, which replaces kind of that care for the the words that are actually on the piece of paper with pure conviction. So the aim of right. the aim of um, scholarship is actually some sort of social justice. Um, and so as long as you're serving a particular end right. of, of justice, it doesn't actually matter the validity. Well, that would be the, the, second, the second kind, I said, yeah. you know, that yeah. you're indifferent to the modes and so, so on. Anything and that this, you just funnel into yeah. that kind of context. And, and this actually has, um, I, I mean, a similar thing could be said theologically as well. So some people, for example, um, only see academia as instrumentally good to promote the gospel or something like that. Right. There, there's a theological version right. of that. But I think this actually has philosophical roots um, and it's connected with, a, a again, an American philosophical tradition called pragmatism. And pragmatism actually sees um, the truth values of statements being tied directly to their impact on the world. And so um, abstract notions of truth or statements being true in and of themselves are irrelevant and instead what matters is what William James, the famous pragmatist philosopher, calls the cash value of a statement. Right. What what purchase does it have in the world? Um, that's the significant... That's what research the, dollars it brings, eh? Do you know? Well, and, and cash in the metaphorical sense of um, you need to see the impact, the direct impact of the words on the world. Well, I was, I was you saying need, it's, you need it's to not be even abstract. Tra- <laughs> and you need to be able to trace it. So, you know, to say, to say that he famously says the statement... There are tigers in in India. Mm. That what that means is you're not saying a state of affairs. You're saying that th- this is something you can go and investigate. There is actually something to do, uh, some tangible thing to do in the world. And this this uh, philosophy kind of emerges um, through the 20th century, 
to be basically, there's no such thing as true or false. There's just effect. And this is, I think, what you're well, saying. Well, in academia, in right? Both, in both about, of those ways. Yeah. Yeah, and we talk about impact statements. Yeah. Um, and actually, when you say, oh, it's not cash value and, and you know, it's abstract. No, we actually have its cash yeah, value because yeah. it actually translates into publications equals more research yeah. dollars and so on. So so that that's, I mean, I just have that as a real a point of concern. And so I think there's that two types. One is the the total indifference mm. as a sense of like, because for whatever reason, you're structured now and disciplined in a manner to say that's the goal is not to actually do the hard work of developing over time coherent convictions mm. that then have to have purchase in the world yeah. and so on. But actually to tick things over. Yeah. Um, that that could have a deleterious effect on academia. Yeah. You know, that would be that's just a hypothesis, I think, yeah. that I think would be interesting to explore. Yeah. And then the second form is that pragmatism you mentioned, you know, mm. <laughs> the example would be, you know, people who do this walk-up evangelism in universities <laughs> because they just see it as just a it's essentially like a car park, right? Yeah. Um it might as well be a car park, in other mm. words. It's got nothing to do with the academic enterprise and so on. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, not but, that I have a, a, a problem with work up evangelism per se, um, just the pure instrumentalization of the space is right. probably what I have a problem with. Right, right. So so I think, you know, you could take, so you mentioned social media and so on. I think we could take this down into sort of internal criticism, yeah. right, of like is this something we, we see this, you talk about just general reporting, mm. politics, you know, you, people talk about post-truth mm. politics, but do we see this affecting religious communities? So, mm. so maybe we take it into a little bit of a why church why space. <laughs> um, why church why for any of our long-time listeners is where Dave and I talk things that make us cry in the shower about the church, um, not because we – have a pro- we dislike the church quite the opposite it's because we love it so much it can hurt us so badly <laughs> yeah <laughs> so, so um <laughs> yes re- so is there is there something there then do you think there's purchase for this about religion and bullshit yeah so i think um and i suppose you know i i i we were so hesitant to kind of talk about falau and now i feel like i want to talk more about kind of surrounding phenomena to that as well. Do it. In that there there seems to be this sense in which people believe that not speaking in the in the public sphere is somehow a betrayal mm. uh, of whatever position you have. And I mean I'd hate to psycholo- psychologize Falau himself, but I genuinely believe because I can kind of get where he's coming from as far as that form of religion goes. I can I could understand the mindset of going, no, I have to say this because 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 I feel hesitant to say it, I have to say it to prove to God that I am I'm faithful to him. Mm. I can imagine that being the the thought process behind where someone like Flowers coming from. But the same could be said of kind of more uh probably less kind of toxic utterances uh, in the public sphere as well. So you have kind of progressives feeling the need to have make a progressive comment at every stage on every issue that emerges. I mean, progressive Christians, that is. And you also have kind of evangelical Christians who feel like it, unless I I actually kind of give my five cents at this particular moment, I'm somehow betraying the gospel or at least I'm betraying my Christian tribe or Christian identity somehow. So so actually the, the impetus is always on you to speak. Yes. This, and this is particularly the case for a particular kind of type of Christian leader. Um, and, and uh, yeah, and silence moral, is less of a virtue. And they have a it sort of, it almost becomes, it's moral to have some new insight. Yeah. And yet the insight is often not new. It's just dressed up. Mm. 
or else the inside is banal. Yeah. Or else the inside is not an inside in the sense that like you go back to the falal thing. Mm. I was I was amazed at how many people suddenly became experts in contract law. Yeah. That's <laughs> amazed. Right. You know, it's just <laughs> and, and this is this kind of idea that you said the journalist now, or was it the political um, operative, has to always have an opinion because the microphone's there. Mm. Well, there's a sense in which we somehow we're all journalists, yeah, right? Yeah. I, I I thought of social media. I, I think the metaphor I was thinking before was like it's kind of like you used to go to the dinner table mm. and your uncle would say ridiculous things, mm. and you could go, "Oh well, I'll argue with my uncle, or I won't. It doesn't matter. It's mm. my uncle. I won't see them again." Yeah. It's now the entire world is a dinner table. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, around a communion of disorder. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I I feel like this is very much this this kind of uh, being forced to say something, and then because you don't you haven't kind of thought deeply about the the deep implications of what you're saying, you end up talking bullshit mm. because you're just putting words out there uh, without any consideration to their deeper implications mm. or their structural coherence or their their relatedness to um, other intellectual furniture and, and, and there's like a that. there's a thing there about I mean coherence is I mean I don't mean to say this entirely condescendingly because it's difficult for but it's difficult yeah no it is to actually put things together and think about this so I'll give you an example that I I found quite problematic so Australia mm. those who listen out of Australia had a um, postal survey vote. Mm to um, basically poll the people on whether they believed that um, marriage should be extended to same-sex couples a couple of years ago. And um, and many of the Christian community leaders and so on, um, of more conservative and evangelicals were uh, and Catholics were very keen on this in the end, mm. right? They're very keen on it, having this postal survey vote. And I was just, and I thought, this this ultimately struck me as just pragmatic. Yes. Um, they thought, here's our chance to say things and maybe they had some sense that maybe they could actually win as mm. well. Um, but there was no deep conversation about what does it mean to our constitutional architecture mm. to introduce this kind of deliberative process mm. in which you are polling the people you're not engaging in necessarily a deliberative exercise in the way that we do yeah. through parliament and select committees and so on, but you're polling people on a yes-no proposition. Yeah. What are the implications of that? Well, the implications, for example, downstream, of course, is that people then say, well, Australia voted against discrimination. And then all these conservative Christians go, oh, maybe, oh, oh oops, maybe it wasn't <laughs> a great idea to have a yes-no entirely or something. Mm. It's the entire basis for mm. deciding these questions. But no sort of discussion then about what does it mean to actually engage in a rich, deliberative exercise. Yeah. Um, entirely pragmatic in ways yeah. to think this is the mechanism that will hopefully lead to the outcome that yeah. we want. And I, I think this, this kind of pragmatic approach to language kind of infects a lot of Christian discourse or, yeah, Christian discourse in particular. So if you think about, um, you know, I'm thinking back to my own um, more conservative days, um, uh where, you know, you'd think something like the entire, every single individual in the world's very soul is in peril of eternal damnation and perpetual torture, <laughs> right? So what does this mean for the types of strategies that we should employ uh, in order to convince people to repent and be saved? 
Well, that means that it's basically open slather. The the type of discourse that we use in order to save a soul from eternal damnation, it does it's 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 a very distant second consideration to the the seriousness of the charge, which leads to this utter pragmatism um, around the the type of discourse that we use, the mediums that we use, the language that we use. Uh, all that is subordinated to the task of evangelism, which which. Um, which subordinates completely any other consideration. Um, now, you know, my my understanding of perdition's probably changed a lot, which has shaped uh, my understanding of the priorities around types of discourse that we'll use. Uh, but we'll we'll put that to to the side. But what does that do to um, our perception of language um, as a faith community um, if we think that the type of discourse that we use is completely instrumental um or, or you can go you know another example we talked about last week was with Falau and talking about religious liberty mm. and there is what i would describe as what's been described in the united states as a kind of fusionist politics yeah. that some christians engage in and this is the idea that you can adopt secular forms of reason mm. um liberal registers of rights yeah. for example um freedom to develop your own conception of the good mm. to exercise your moral autonomy in the universe yeah. and so on and you can adopt those, and it's language that the world will accept in order to then get to your end point, which is so that we may preach the gospel yeah. or something like this, right? Yeah. Now, what does that do, actually, to the nature of public discourse generally yeah. if you start supporting something that you know may turn out to actually undermine the very good right. yeah. that you are trying to pursue? Yeah, and, and I mean, and adding in another kind of problematic dimension here, that I didn't touch on, which is very important for thinking about bullshit, is one of the sources of bullshit is the assumption that language and words don't matter because at bottom, it's all power. Mm. It's all power games, which fits with this kind of um, combative liberal understanding of rights discourse. So basically the world, the political world is a battle royale of uh, people with competing interests grabbing as many rights as possible. Um, and so under my, underlying all kind of political utterances is an attempt of one party to get a, get power over the other. And we see this, I, I mean, this drives me absolutely up the wall on both sides of politics when after someone loses an election or someone wins an election, there'll be talk about other, the other side being sore losers to the, to the discourse as if this is just some sort of competition yeah. where we're all just out for our team rather than, no, we're actually... We have competing understandings of the direction that the country ought to take, and we're disappointed that the rest of the body of politics didn't get on board with that. Um, and this can be the same with kind of, um, I don't know, discourse around religious liberty as well. Mm. Yeah, so um, I think... So, so the, the assumption is that everyone's out to get for themselves. Right. Um, uh, you know, so much for the tolerant left... They, it turns out they were just trying to mask their own insidious power games. And and the Christian who wants to assert religious liberty is just trying to maintain their own privilege. And right. on both sides, yeah. you've got the assumption that all speech acts are just masks for power games, and that leads to a culture of bullshit. Yeah, um, yeah, as opposed to this being questions of justice. Yes. In which justice is the right ordering of a community, the individual good aligned with a common good and so on, yeah. you know, that we may actually have different views on this and we're trying to, you know, interrogate them and 
bring them to bear on life. I mean, I think, for example, on that one, you know, religious liberty and so on, it's interesting because in the States, for example, um, what you see is that kind of fusionist politics where people thought they could develop um, eventually lead to what they thought were good Christian goals mm. through a sort of secular liberal register of rights and balancing mm. and so on. Um, balancing rights of individuals. It's almost um, like a Cold War approach to... <laughs> well, uh, you're describing, you know, yeah. yeah. But, but, but now what you see is actually people are giving up on this yeah. because one of the reasons they give up on it is because it, it, it tends to, um, you know, thinking of language in that sort of pragmatic way, using whatever means you can to try and get the ends you want, tends to render mm. um, Christianity unintelligible. Mm. Um, because it, it it weds it to odd things, for yeah. example. So it weds it potentially to free markets or to individualism in this case, um, to an understanding that society is just simply as you're describing it, you know, a power game, or you could even just, for, in, in less pejorative terms for certain people, the balancing of different mm. rights and interests, you know, rather than something about Christianity making claims on what is the public good and yeah. how life should be coordinated and yeah. done together. But it also it ends up becoming kind of normative, right? So it ends up kind of communicating that we don't believe there is such a thing as the good, the true, the beautiful. Right. Um, this is all just competing perspectives that are that where one kind of perspective needs to win out at the other end, or um, perhaps being nicer, I have a right to my own perspective on the good, the true, and the beautiful, mm. um, and you get to have yours as well. Mm. But you know, you have to protect mine. We need to actually talk as if no, like. We actually think this is stuff is true. Mm. Um, yeah, it well, is, is actually pointing at something. I find that. I mean, I found that that point about we need to talk about as though this is true. I mm. found that there was periodically you get this debate raised about scripture in schools mm. and what's the basis for it. And some people tried have tried on different occasions to say, "Oh, look, all these studies show that if you study, if you do scripture and so on, you're happier." Yeah. Oh yes. Or you, or, or you, oh, but they you, do the same conversely, like with these kind of ridiculous supposedly empirical um, evidence against same-sex relationships saying right. there's this empirically verifiable fact right. but they just kind of manipulate data. To- or, or there probably just isn't enough data yeah. anyway at any yeah. event. But the one about the schools yeah. is like, um, what if it doesn't? Yeah. What if you're not? I mean, like the idea that you should be happy. Yeah. I and mean, what does happy mean? And then, and then why is happy our register? Mm. And then... Am I happy? <laughs> Are you happy? I mean, my my general point with scripture and schools and so on is that the only ultimate justification is it's true. Yeah. That, yeah. that, that it's true in the sense of we understand that education is not entirely for instrumental purposes of civic life or mm. entering into the marketplace so that you can get a job and so on, but actually education may entail a form of contemplation that rises up to the level of God himself. <laughs> um, that, I think, is the only way, yeah. as a communal commitment yeah. to say that, you know, audacious as it sounds, and if you can't actually yeah. maintain that commitment, yeah. then no amount of social capital yeah. discussion and so on matters in the end. And, and, and in the course of raising those sorts of arguments, I think you render the actual substantive case yeah more and more unintelligible because yeah. you start diluting it. So I, I I suppose if I could ask for one thing from people who <laughs> listen to this, who have all the power over the shape of Christian discourse. Sure, yeah, the they church. do. I'm sure they do. <laughs> so 
surely the church needs to be an antidote to bullshit. That 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 the church needs to be a place that takes the language that we use seriously, so much so that this is the kind of thing that people die over <laughs> is the the use of the right language um, about God, and people have died uh, because of this. Uh, we are in the language business, and we think there's an incredible amount of power in language. So the church surely must be an antidote at some level to a culture of bullshit. And I would say at least on the level of having the goal at communion or conciliation. So actually taking the presupposition that by and large my Christian brothers and sisters are actually aiming to live a life pleasing to God and when they disagree with me, they are probably following their own conscience. Now, like for someone like Falal, I have very little time for the type of thing that he said. Um, uh, but at least I need to start with the supposition, not that, you know, I mean, he's pretty heterodox, so I don't know where I'd say with him. But say people who I disagree with over issues of same-sex relationships and things like that, to at least grant them the the kind of dignity of, hey, perhaps they are actually not doing this out of hate. They're pursuing some sort of good and letting that be the, the beginning of a alternative politics to our kind of Manichaean um, uh, absolutely polarised age. So I would just, yeah, I would, I would, I think if I can articulate and add to that, I think what you're saying is in part that we need a, we need our discussion to be rooted on truth as possible yes. and pursuable and that we are engaged in a shared quest for it. Yes. Um, and, we have a, and we have a shared language through which to do And this. there is difference, yep. right? There is difference in that you take, you know, your exa- extreme example yep. of... So you can be a Catholic, an <laughs> Anglican, or an Eastern Orthodox person. <laughs> um, but there's, there's, an ima- Everyone's there's typically an imaginative capacity like you were engaging in then to actually yeah. understand the sort of existential urging that even someone like Falau may be under. Hmm. Now, you're saying that our language we use must actually be formative towards that understanding that yeah. truth matters from from A to Z. Mm. You know, it can't be a case of here's our goal and then whatever goes in between, right? Yeah. And I would add to that as well that um, when we, it's not, it's language but also then sort of the, the architecture of our arguments. Mm. So it's the language you use but it's also then having a care for um, things like, constitutional architecture yeah. or um, if you go back to the same-sex marriage debate, we had even physical spaces in which we can engage one another and things like yeah. this, right? And and the posture that we take, it, like we need to be as a Christian body kind of orientated towards the 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 uh, towards unity at some level, and that probably means as well. And that means that like institutions are needed. And I, but and just to go very back to the start, mm. that also means that you know, we've just done two episodes in which we talked through for Lau and so on and some of the things that just made me a bit agitated mm. <laughs> and, then, and then on to this on understanding of bullshit, right? Mm. And partly this is because we see ourselves as self-definers mm. of what is, you know, 
true and so on. Yeah. And that actually in the social media context and so on, that we can, um, our job is to declare to the universe our thought as though that's a moral act. Yeah. When really what we need to do is stop, yes. <laughs> engage in processes of silence mm. and listening and, you know, encounter with one another in which we then form moral arguments together. Mm. Well, we're just about out of time. Uh, I feel like I've gotten a lot off my chest. <laughs> and I think I've put it on to Joel. Um, thank you so much for joining. Um, please like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter. You can find us on Twitter at UCAT. That's E-U-C-A-T underscore podcast. Uh, and you can find us on Facebook by just searching the catastrophe. Uh, please keep writing reviews and um, sharing us around. Or send us like your your examples of ultra-pragmatic discourse. <laughs> yes. Oh, and thank you to so many people who have gotten in touch with us and sent us messages and asked us very good questions and things like that. Uh, we should get better at, um, yeah, acknowledging those people and things like that. But thank you so much to everyone that's given feedback and thank you for some really nice reviews recently. Um, maybe we should read some out um, in the coming weeks. But um, until next week, uh, thanks for joining us and we'll see you again next week. Bye.